Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast, where each week we critically analyze one paper in the rheumatology literature. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and today is Episode 9, Rituximab in the Treatment of Refractory Adult and Juvenile Dermatomyositis and Adult Polymyositis. This was a randomized placebo phase trial, we'll talk a little bit about that later, by Otis et al. Really, it's by the RIM study group, the RIM study group. So for background, myositis can be pretty challenging to treat. A lot of patients respond well initially to glucocorticoids. So you put them on steroids, their CK trends towards normalization, though not everyone normalizes, and their symptoms tend to improve. However, a lot of patients develop refractory disease, a lot of patients have flares, and a lot of patients develop complications. Not much has been known about the correct treatment for these patients. Most studies have been on single-center referral centers using cross-sectional retrospective analysis of small numbers of patients, basically the kind of data that you just can't trust. In particular, patients with treatment refractory disease have been poorly studied. Although glucocorticoids have not been formally tested, like I said, they seem to work pretty well, and we all tend to use them as first-line treatment. But after that, it's not quite sure what to use. Rituximab has always been an appealing target. To be honest, it's kind of appealing a target for all of rheumatology. Rituximab is a monoclonal antibody to CD20, which is a ligand expressed on B cells. B cells make antigens. In particular, CD20 B cells make antigens. So attacking those B cells and essentially wiping them out for a short period of time has always been appealing in diseases that we think are antibody-mediated. As far as mitositis is concerned, the effectiveness of rituximab in polymyositis and dermatomyositis have been suggested by a variety of case reports and case series. To be fair, case reports and case series just about always suggest that there is some efficacy of a drug. It had never been trialed in a proper randomized controlled trial, and so the investigators set out to do a randomized controlled trial of sorts entitled the rituximab and myositis study, or the RIM trial. We'll get to this at the end, but essentially they did a very nice observational study, not an RCT. So let's talk about the methods. So eligible patients included adults with a diagnosis of definite or probable dermatomyositis or polymyositis and children of five years of age or older with definite or probable juvenile dermatomyositis. For both groups, the criteria were the Bohan and Peter criteria. Briefly, the Bohan and Peter criteria are kind of old school. They've been around for quite a while. The criteria are symmetric weakness, a biopsy demonstrating classic features of myositis, increased biomicers such as the CK or the aldolase, evidence on an EMG, or a dermatomyositis rash. These have recently been replaced, so any study that uses these criteria should not necessarily be questioned, but we should remember that it doesn't necessarily apply to patients that we diagnose today. A number of definitions were important. In particular, Refractory myositis was defined by the intolerance or inadequate response to glucocorticoids and at least one other immunosuppression. That makes sense to me. An adequate glucocorticoid was defined as 60 mg per day of prednisone in adults and 1 mg per kg per day of prednisone in pediatric patients for at least one month. Adequate immunosuppression was considered three months of an agent at a known effective dose. That sounds pretty solid to me. We should also talk about a number of their outcome measures. We'll talk about the primary outcomes in just a minute, but some of the studies that they used were the MMT8. So the MMT8 is essentially a muscle score that's been validated in myositis. 
It assesses eight different muscle groups from head to toe and one axial and is out of 150 points. It's a pretty good measure of how active myositis is. They further identified a number of what they called core measures. These included a patient's and parent's global assessment of disease activity, physician's global assessment of disease activity, a health assessment questionnaire, elevated level of at least one muscle enzyme, a global extramuscular disease activity score with a minimum value of one centimeter. Should be noted that other drugs were washed out and new ones were prohibited during the trial. Exclusion criteria included essentially anything else that caused myositis, drug-induced myositis, cancer-associated myositis, myositis and overlap with another connective tissue disease, etc. They wanted to just isolate the people who had dermatomyositis or polymyositis. Now, the next thing is important. They defined improvement in a relatively complicated way. I'm going to simplify it and say that a 20% improvement on half of those measures that I just talked about was considered an improvement, and you couldn't worsen on any more than two, and this had to be seen at two consecutive visits. That was what they called the definition of improvement. The definition of worsening to them was a physician's global assessment, again, 20% worse, or worsening by 20% on some other measures. For simplicity's sake, this is basically the essential definition of improvement or worsening that we use in rheumatology, a 20% improvement or worsening. All that seemed pretty fair, and the first part of their study design will make sense as well. So I'm going to start with that. They divided patients into two groups. The first group was a rituximab early group. The second group was the rituximab late group. The rituximab early group were given rituximab at zero weeks and one week. The rituximab late group was given placebo, so they got an infusion, but they didn't get any rituximab. So in this sense, at least at the beginning, this was a classic randomized controlled trial. Up until eight weeks, this continued to be a classic randomized controlled trial. But at eight weeks, things got a little weird. The patients in the rituximab early group at eight weeks got placebo rituximab. And then at week nine, they also got placebo rituximab. The people in the rituximab late group who had been given placebo at week zero and week one, then got rituximab at week eight and week nine. So really what they did is a randomized controlled trial for eight weeks. And then from eight weeks to week 44, all patients had gotten rituximab. Some of them had gotten it early at week zero and week one. And in the rituximab late group, they'd gotten it later at week eight and week nine. I know, this is kind of confusing. During this time, the glucocorticoid dose was held constant without reduction until week 16. At week 16, if patients met their definition of improvement, then they got a reduction beginning at that point. So let's talk about endpoints. The primary endpoint was the time to achieve the definition of improvement, which was compared between the rituximab early and the rituximab late groups. There were also a couple of secondary endpoints that will wind up being pretty important. The first secondary endpoint was a time to achieve a 20% improvement on the MMT8 on two consecutive visits. The second endpoint was the proportion of patients achieving the definition of improvement, again, that's 20% improvement, give or take, at week eight. So their third secondary endpoint was actually the only randomized controlled trial part of this study. There were a couple other things they measured. They looked at B cells, they looked at adverse events. Uh, we can pretty much skip all that. The stats were more or less appropriate, so let's talk about the results. So who got in this trial? 
The investigators assessed 239 patients for eligibility. Of those, 200 were randomized, 96 wound up in the rituximab early group, and 104 in the rituximab late group. There are a few dropouts, so ultimately 93 patients were analyzed in the rituximab early group, and 102 patients were analyzed in the rituximab late group. I should note, however, that dropouts were just dropped. They weren't analyzed in an intention-to-treat protocol. There weren't that many of them, three in one side and two in the other, so I don't think it's very important, but it should be noted that this isn't a classic intention-to-treat analysis. In general, this was a pretty sick cohort. Patients were around 60 to 70 years old. About 75% were feeble. Most patients had had disease for five years, and they were on about 20 milligrams of prednisone daily. 90% were on some steroid-sparing agent. So this is a pretty sick cohort. That was borne out by the VAS scores, which were between 50 to 65, depending on the group and depending on the physician or the patient's assessment. That's pretty active disease. About 20% had the antisynthetase syndrome, and about 15% had the anti-SRP protein. Again, those are bad prognostic signs. The values for most of the core measures were similar at baseline. There were a couple small changes between the two, but I don't think they were clinically meaningful. So, what did they find? Regarding the primary outcome measure, 83% met the predetermined definition of improvement by week 44. That sounds great, right? But that's not compared to placebo. Problem is that the time to achieving the definition of improvement was not different between the two groups. The primary endpoint was met by the early group at 20 weeks. The primary endpoint was met by the late group at 20.2 weeks. So whether you got rituximab at week 0 or rituximab at week 8, both groups seemed to improve by 20 weeks. That's a pretty spectacular failure of this trial. That tells you that, at the very minimum, rituximab doesn't seem to make any appreciable difference over two months of therapy. As far as their secondary outcomes, pretty much a similar story. The time to achieve a 20% improvement on the MMT8 on two consecutive visits was not statistically different. 15% of patients in the rituximab-treated early group met the definition of improvement, and 20% in the placebo group met the definition of improvement at the eight-week time point. Again, not statistically significantly different. So this is kind of a big failure when you think about it. That being said, the investigators tried to salvage the trial with a couple of points. For one, everyone kind of got better. Something like 83% of patients treated with rituximab had improved by week 44. That wasn't different between the two groups, that was looking at both groups. Additionally, the mean prednisone dosage at baseline was around 20.8 mg per day. This dropped to 14.4 mg per day by the end of the trial. So that means that rituximab seemed to have some kind of steroid-sparing effect, or at least that was their interpretation. An alternative interpretation is that the patients just got better and rituximab didn't really work. There wasn't any difference whatsoever in the rate of steroid taper between the two groups. If rituximab was super effective, you would have expected the early group to start to taper more early. As far as adverse events were concerned, they were more or less the same between the two groups. That's not surprising because both groups got rituximab. The most common were pneumonia, cellulitis, and then some patients had urosepsis, herpes zoster, and a couple other varieties of infection. Infusion reactions were common, unfortunately, in both groups, 15% in the rituximab group and 5% in the placebo group initially. 
That tells you that at least 1 in 20 infusion reactions are probably not legitimate. But rituximab had a give or take 10% rate of infusion reactions over placebo. So that's a number needed to treat of 10 to get one infusion reaction. That tells me that this is something we're going to see. So let's talk about how to analyze this trial. This is the largest clinical trial ever performed in the inflammatory polymyopathies. Nice job to the authors. Unfortunately, I think this is basically the best observational study ever performed in the inflammatory myopathies. Unfortunately, they really didn't perform a real randomized controlled trial. And at the end of this study, we just can't assess it as such. The authors readily acknowledge this fact that things didn't work out the way they'd hope. There are a couple reasons that they point to this, and I think they're relatively fair. The first is that rituximab acted much slower than expected. They thought that by week eight, the full effects of rituximab would have been realized. Most of the patients really did improve. 83% had a 20% improvement. That being said, it didn't happen quickly. More importantly, it seems like placebo worked pretty well. This is something we see in placebo studies, where if you give a patient a pill, they get better. If you give a patient an injection, they also get better. If you bring them to an infusion center and you give them an infusion that you tell them costs $25,000 a dose, they're going to take that to heart and a lot of them are going to feel better. I'd also just like to point out that this was probably not the right study design. It's a good reason why you do proper randomized controlled trials. This design was kind of cute in the sense that it avoided the possible ethical pitfalls of not giving patients a necessary drug, but because of that, we really just don't have the answer. The authors do point out a number of reasons why they decided to do this, and they're commendable. For one, they enrolled children in the study, and they felt that it wouldn't be right to do a traditional parallel group randomized controlled trial. There are also international consensus guidelines for con the conduct of clinical trials that they said felt that the median duration of placebo administration would be about eight weeks to be fair in myositis. Again, I think that's a little strange singling out myositis this way. My own thoughts are that this was also a very sick population. Remember that these people had had myositis for five years, they're on a lot of medications, and I wonder how much of the failure of this trial was due to the fact that these patients just weren't going to get better. That may be belied by the fact that 83% did improve, but I still think that had you had more of an acute inflammatory response as opposed to a bunch of patients who had long-standing disease, perhaps immunosuppression early would have been more successful. Finally, this was a heterogeneous population. There's a long disease duration, and the antibody subsets in the patient were quite different. There are SRP antibodies, there are antisynthetase antibodies, there are a lot of patients who had neither. And those patients really aren't the same. Before we get to the end, I'd like to point out how the authors themselves sum this up. They say, while the trial itself showed no statistical difference between the treatment groups, the overall response, the ability to taper glucocorticoid therapy, and the responses to retreatment suggest that the agent had an effect. I find that hard to swallow. This was not a proper randomized controlled trial, in the only eight weeks that were a proper randomized controlled trial, they didn't see an effect. And although 83% of patients did improve, that is just essentially a very well-designed observational study. A few take-home points. This was a good try at a really important question. We need more therapies for myositis, and rituximab was, and I think still is, a promising therapy. They ran a pretty good observational trial. 
83% of patients improved by week 44. Unfortunately, in the actual part of the study that was a randomized controlled trial from week 0 to 8, it really didn't show efficacy. If you're going to use rituximab for refractory myositis, you can't really expect the benefit within the first two months. Perhaps there will be a benefit after that, but remember that you're not basing this on a randomized controlled trial. You're basing this on the idea that when people were given rituximab, 83% improved. Unclear how many would have improved had they not been given rituximab. It's hard though. I think the authors did a good job of trying to assess this question, and ultimately, I think we need a little more information before we can know for sure whether rituximab works for inflammatory myositis. Thanks a lot for joining us. This was an exciting trial, and I'm looking forward to next week when we talk about what I'm calling the Rumageddon, a paper that was recently published by the ACR on the impending workforce shortage. Thanks again for listening in. Looking forward to talking to you next week.